Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Gita Joshi. And where? what's your background? Where are you from? So I am based in London. I have an art history background and I worked for Royal Commissions and then Architects Consultancies. And then I moved into finance or financial services and did that for many years. And during that time, I sort of still had one foot in you know the art world but in a very much a volunteer capacity you know sort of volunteer at open house and all these sorts of things and you know go to lots of museums shows and so on and um, then it was in the financial crisis in what was that 2008 I left banking and wasn't quite sure what to do I mean I went to Italy on a one-way ticket for a while and then when I got back, I thought, okay, well, well what can I do? So I, I went back to uni and I thought, oh, well, you know, art history, that's what I've always been interested in, kind of go and do more of that. And um, so what happened after that? So at some point, I can't remember even when it was now, but I uh, trained in curating at Central St. Martins. And I think it was really at that point that I realised that I could sort of bring the, you know, art interest and the business interest together. Uh, previous to that, I'd always thought that, you know, working in the art sector meant working in museums. And those show, um, those sorts of jobs are obviously very few and far between. And, well, and being you know, poor. Yeah. And, you know, not very well paid. And they want a ton of qualifications. They only hire people from particular universities. It's, it's its whole own game anyway. So I think the, the curating really you know, landed for me, you know, and that was a way I'd be more involved as well, because a mu museum job, if I even did go and get one, would be very much sort of back office admin thing, probably. So this was a much more sort of proactive way of going about it. So really, that's what happened. And, you know, for me, it was just this realisation of bringing those two big things that I was very interested in together. And of course, working with contemporary um, working practising artists as well. So um, it was not long after that that I sort of decided I wanted to kind of pursue that somehow. I uh, wasn't quite sure how and then I did an art fair. And I think that's when I really realised that how much I loved actually talking to people that didn't know so much about art. About art. So that, that went well. And so it was really kind of literally maybe like three or four months after that that I actually got a physical gallery space in central London and opened my own gallery and yeah and then that closed at that space in 2016 and actually alongside when I was doing that I also I was a board member for a visual arts charity as well in the UK they have an annual um, visual arts festival Campbell Arts and so I, that was all kind of sort of happening at the same time and then I carried on with Campbell Arts for a couple of years after that as well after I'd left the gallery space so I was doing my own sort of pop-up exhibitions in temporary spaces, did a few of them. Sometimes I was placing um, artists work in other sort of projects. With the arts charity, I set up my own open exhibition. So this kind of ran alongside the festival, which usually happens in June. And so we, we did the uh, Campbell Open, it was called. We did that for a couple of years, and we're actually sort of talking about possibly doing that as a digital version this year. And I ran the Open Studios program with them. And that was also, that was really interesting kind of working with 
the artists that were doing open studios because there's quite a lot of studios here in South London. It's not far from uh, Camberwell College of Arts, which is quite a well-known art school. While I was doing the open studios, that's when I was actually having lots of conversations with artists in their studios. And I thought that was, you know, it was one thing was sort of helping them communicate more of their ideas that I would then be able to put into, you know, whatever we were doing, like Facebook posts and blog posts and just having those sort of conversations. But, you know, it was really out of the conversations that we kind of got much more depth out of, like, you know, them being able to explain their work. And really out of that was born my own podcast because I just felt like, you know, so many more people could learn from it. It really, you know, like more people needed to know about them. And uh, this was one of the, you know, and sort of really taking those conversations, not just out to the studio, but, you know, to a much bigger and wider audience. So that is how then my own podcast, The Curator Salon, uh, came about as well. Which is how I originally found you as well. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So my first question, my biggest question to sort of just get the ball rolling on this whole thing is, what is the contemporary role of a curator in your experience? In my experience, I mean, obviously, you know, there are so many sort of roles and it's one of these real umbrella terms. But the way I work is really is that um, middle ground between the audience and the artist. It's sort of bridging that gap there by helping the artist present their work. So that, that, you know, in a physical context or a virtual context or whatever, but then also in the communication of that visual work through words and yeah, like, you know, written and spoken word. Okay, so you, do you help artists write like their bios and their artist statements and grant applications and residency applications like this kind of stuff? Do you do you assist with that? I do the writing about the work. I help them with the statement, you know, and that's often, you know, born out of conversations again because when they start writing the statements, they're often quite veiled. They think it's particular things it ought to be. It needs to sound a certain way. You know, and we talk a lot about, well, you know, who are we actually trying to communicate these ideas to? So, you know, it's based out of that. Obviously, I have my own audience as well. So I'm kind of quite aware of audiences and the level of engagement you get when you use certain language and so on as well. So, yeah, working with the artist on their statement, their bio, the best sort of presentation of that. Again, we also look at sort of the different channels they would be using that. So if it's social media or if it's for, you know, their publications or, you know, and again, like, you know, and who's their readership. So there's that side of it, uh, catalogues and all, so on, but not grant writing. That's its own thing. So I don't do that. And that's where I'm positioned quite differently in that, you know, I really do work much more in the commercial end of things rather than the grant writing and the fund writing. And when I've worked with people, they've usually had somebody else to do that for them as well. Okay, we'll see, because that's sort of my big question is, is I come from America. In America, they say, oh, no, you have to write your own artist statement. Having somebody else help you sort of inappropriate or cheating or whatever. But here in Europe, I hear much more frequently that curators have their own input and their own sort of stamp on helping artists to write their statements to make it more eloquent to the viewer rather than sort of like um, self-serving for the artist. Because like when I write an artist statement, it's sort of written to please me, but it's not necessarily as engaging or as enthralling or whatever 
for a general viewer to read it. So we, I feel like sometimes we need that mediator of like a curator to translate our artistic ideas into something for lack of a better word, marketable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know why in the U S that is, that might be frowned upon, but you know, I mean, I, I also work with artists in a mentoring capacity and this is often one of the things we work on, you know, they just want to, you know, get that nailed so that they can write a stronger application, for example. There are certain types of artist statements you might put on exhibition and there might be a different type or a different, maybe either more elaborate or more specific that you maybe put on your website or something like this. So like there are tailoring of the artist statements, you know, because in the old days they used to just say like make a boilerplate and then just, you know, tweak a little bit of it to, to suit your purposes. But I feel like with the sheer volume of ways that artists communicate these days so whether social media website exhibitions book publications whatever like that we have to continually be evolving our statements because like literally if we use the exact same statement every time in all those places people would stop reading them totally i totally agree i think you really need to know who you're writing for um you know if you are self-representing and you're really getting most of your uh, traffic or sales from social media that you're sending them to your website where they can see more work and learn about you and potentially buy then you need to be writing for whoever that audience is you know I think it's Derek Sivers that says don't try and impress an invisible jury of MBA professors uh, but that's what I was taught I mean I was taught to write for like Yale professors like that was the deal you know, Latin phrases, Kantian philosophies, all these kinds of things. That's how you write artist statements. I'm totally joking. That's completely wrong <laughs> these days. So you seem to be focusing a bit more in your career right now on sort of online sales and this kinds of stuff. Is that right? Um, I help artists with their online sales. Yeah. Um, I just uh, last week launched my own online exhibition um, that's a virtual exhibition where you can walk through a virtual gallery space. The artwork in that gallery is available for sale. That's right. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about that because with the pandemic that just came, sort of started to hit us, we it, it feels like literally overnight all of the museums and galleries suddenly were able to do virtual tours like overnight. It's as though they had them ready and they were just like, well, why do we need them? And then all of a sudden they needed them and they just put them out there. So like, how did you even do it? So like, you literally like sort of nuts and bolts, like how do you do them technically? Technically, I mean, you can find software to do it just like you can find software to, you know, put your artwork in situ, right? You know, you put it on a, a, in a room sort of setting. So, I mean, it's just a development of that. But it, I think what's more interesting and important about it i mean the, my version of it is actually you know you can physically well physically it feels very physical you can move through a gallery space and, and navigate around and move to the left and right and pan and zoom and so on i think what web exhibitions is, is such a broad term and you know sometimes they are just photographs on a on a web page and and some writing so you might as well just be looking at a web page but you know they're telling you they've curated it or whatever they've done. And, you know, that passes for a, a web exhibition. I mean, the other format I've seen is when people are, you know, you might have like one uh, gallery guide or a, 
a dealer or somebody walking through a gallery space and talking about them. So it's much more sort of video um, experience again, and that one being a bit more show and tell, I guess, and also like a, a tour through through a, a gallery space, you know, and when they allow like one person in there. Um, I know Hastings Contemporary have done something quite interesting, which is they've got a, a robot, and uh, this robot kind of goes round, and um, I, I haven't actually used it, and I need to check in with them to see how that's going. But I think you could, as a visitor on your own laptop, you can sort of tell the, you know, that this robot with the camera where to go and sort of find out more about the artworks in that display. But my one is, like I said, it's a virtual gallery space and it's very much hung like a traditional white cube space gallery. You can move around it. But I think one of the more interesting things about it is how we now then package that up as both an exhibition and, you know, the marketing experience that goes around it. So I think the issue has always been getting uh, people to the websites, you know, and now we're kind of offering something else. And so the whole online marketing sort of driving traffic from social media, from all the other places is really, you know, where all our attention is. So for, for my exhibition, we had, you know, you have to register to see the exhibition. So that grows the mailing list. And so when somebody then registers to see the exhibition, they're taken straight in to their inbox, they receive another link to enter it so they can visit it anytime the exhibition is open. In my case, this exhibition goes till the end of April. They also get a PDF catalogue to their inbox uh, um, about the, you know, the artwork on display and so on. They will probably over the course of the show get about four emails. So there's a, a second one will remind them, you know, that it's there and it should revisit it. Probably we're going to ask for feedback on that one. What did you think? And sort of get that a bit of engagement and also on that one we'll probably mention the fact that it got um, mentioned in the top five um, online exhibitions to see by fad which is a really great online publication very nice congratulations thank you very much and uh, then the third one um, patrick the artist and i are going to be recording a virtual walkthrough of the gallery but we're going to be talking about it so it is going to be basically a video format but it is like an artist and curator talk in that space where, you know, the visual will be the artwork. And then there's he and I talking over it as we move around the room. So that, so that will be email three and then probably email four will be, you know, um, you know, closing soon or something to, to that effect. When we did this, I really started with the visitor experience in mind and, you know, how we can make that as, as, as strong as it can be, you know, and getting sort of people there to see it, to experience it, to engage with it, and then obviously inviting them to give us feedback as well, because we're not there in person with them and getting that feedback. So Yeah, yeah you can't I mean, read their body language, you can't yeah. see their expressions, you don't know whether they're engaged or not. Exactly. So, you know, we're kind of trying to do this virtually, and then obviously talking about it a lot on social media. But yeah, that's kind of the, the gist of it, really, I think, for, for us. And then, yeah, we'll see how that evolves. It's an interesting progression. I mean, these kinds of things, I mean, I remember being in college 20 years ago and there was the rudimentary software of trying to create this kind of stuff, but it was very, very rudimentary. And it, of course, was so big and cumbersome, it couldn't even be online back then. So now it's, it's so fast and efficient that they can put it you know, through the internet these days. It's quite impressive. 
I, I think it is. It's, you know, it's just one of these things that even three years ago was still in development for, you know, I've often had people come to me saying, oh, they're developing software so you can do this. Um, but it's never been as good as it is now because now we even, you know, you can stream videos, you know, watching things on Netflix and so on as a standard and still be running another window open on your computer. So, yeah, the developments are you know pretty fast on these things now. So it's, you know, in that respect, we're fortunate to be quarantined in a time when we do have great, you know, um, digital resources. Indeed. So back to social media, website, this kind of stuff. Do you use it? Do you like it? Is it helpful? Is it hurt you? Like, you know, what, what's your position on social media and websites and how are they benefiting or hindering opportunities? I really enjoy social media, but I've found that over the years, you know, I've stopped and started with quite a few of the different platforms. But these days I'm mostly on Instagram. That's kind of where I hang out mostly. And Facebook, Twitter is now and again. Uh, Pinterest is usually a bit forgotten. LinkedIn, I don't know why people hunt me down on there, but, you know, it's always a slew of requests. But it is what it is, you know. So I try and put something up on all of them now and again. But yeah, Instagram and Facebook, I would say, is probably where I'm most regular. I do like them. And I think, you know, I have to say, you know, I, I've met some great people through social media. I've met great artists through that. I've met, uh, you know, and they're, they're people I've got to know in real life. They're people that I've had on the podcast. And I think we do really use it for a way to source new things you know I mean people look at it when they're buying houses or furniture or makeup or whatever right so whatever the thing you're interested in it, you know you can find it on social media and would probably do spend a bit too much time there which is why it's great if you are actually selling something well I mean that leads to the thing is you were talking about earlier about how it's like building your network and and, and knowing who your your clients are so the tailoring things to your clients my issue is that I believe that most artists have no idea who their clients are, um, either through ignorance or just not paying attention. But And so therefore then they don't use social media or search engines or email newsletters or any of these other kinds of great marketing techniques that are available because we, we just don't know how to, we don't even know the starting point of who to, to address them to. Yeah, I mean, I think you can just use your own voice and be your own, you know, yourself on social media, because there's no point putting a veneer on it just to please other people. But if you have ever sold any kind of work, or you've shown your work, then you will have met people that, you know, either bought it or came to your show or saw your work at a group exhibition or something. You can literally just think of one of those people that you had some degree of rapport with, and imagine them, you know, multiply them. I mean, you know, that would just help you get the right tone if if you're really starting out with, you know, what to say or how to describe your work and, you know, sort of just talking in a in an accessible way about your work. I have to admit that I'm completely inept when it comes to social media. And I feel like a lot of very talented artists are not using it to the best of their abilities. And so are there any sort of things that you've had experiences of that could help us to utilize the, the online resources better? Yeah. So if we, if we talk about social media, for example, 
like I think you know a lot of artists kind of feel they are stuck with you know they've got a body of work and they feel repetitive when they're showing it and I think that is nothing to be shy of you know I think if you are growing and if your audience is growing on social media then it is always helpful to you know go back to your artist statement like pull out a sentence or something from it for example and you know sort of elaborate on it to you know turn that into a, a social media post let's say you're on Instagram because your new audience still need to be reintroduced to the ideas in your work for example I mean that's one example you know and similarly sort of you know and I did this I think it was last week or the week before and I went on and I just did a whole new like you know thanks for all my thanks to all these new people that are following me let me come back and introduce myself and you know it was a headshot and stuff so you can come back and introduce yourself also talking about past sort of shows and exhibitions you've had and things like that that can always be good you know especially if you've got some photos to go with it that always reminds people that you've been around longer than we've known about you oh so, so doing see because i'm of the opinion that like you should be going forward and showing your newer stuff but you're saying it's perfectly legitimate to go backwards and show your history Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, that's sort of, you've got all these years of experience under your belt. You know, you, you do need to show people that you've got to remind people, people that are still in your audience that maybe came to your show last year, you know, that's going to create that bit more engagement. And, you know, especially if they were there and sort of saw your work there. So they can talk about that again. Um, so that's sort of, yeah, looking a bit to the past, I guess. And then certainly, you know, if you've got work in progress, I know a lot of artists don't like to show work in progress. But, uh, you know, personally, I think it is really interesting. I think it's really good to see that um, development and that evolution of the work, even if it's sort of exploratory ideas. I'm talking about things like the inspiration or the sources of your ideas, you know, whether it's text or, you know, photographs that you're turning into paintings or whatever it is, that can also add, um, you know, good sort of value. Because I think what we're really doing is kind of educating the, visitor to your page your post your feed about you and your work and that's really what you're doing them giving them an insight into it you know you're creating some content that they can understand the artwork you know again using words you're helping them sort of relate to what they're seeing visually your processes and techniques and then you know just really giving them a hook you know like a point of connection because if you only post pictures and some hashtags you're probably not going to get that much engagement and you know unless it's an absolutely stunning painting and and that's if you've already got a large audience i think i know that's that's that my position really yeah, that's where i am like i i don't really know how to use it well and i'm getting lots of great tips and insights through of course these conversations unfortunately i'm not adhering to most of the recommendations and actually listening to all of these recommendations though i should be because i'm hearing them from people who have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. And that's a, another great artist trait is that we often hear things and, and are told things, but it, it sometimes it's difficult to integrate it into our daily life and our rituals and, and sort of change how we have done things and sort of listen to the advice and make, do something better. I think it's it really takes time. It takes, you really need to want to do it, but also then set aside time like batching that work you know because you could sit down for a couple of hours and write 
you know, certain amount of content. And I think also it helps if you put some kind of purpose behind it. If you know that this is actually going to move you forward because you're trying to get on the radar of, I don't know, certain people or you want to be featured in certain media or publications or something like that. The reason behind that consistency is that purpose of that thing you're trying to achieve. And that can sort of help the direction as well. Because like, if you're ever going to pitch to a gallery, a curator, a media, as we say, anything like that, or you know, even going for grants and things, people do look at your social media. These days you have to put in like your um, follower numbers and you know your social media handles. And they ask you if you're social media handles so they can see you online and see you know, how you're doing, because this is now very much sort of perceived as evidence of you working on your craft and, you know, building an audience for yourself. I've heard stories of galleries not accepting artists because they didn't have enough followers. And I mean, I'm maybe I'm just old fashioned this way, but I feel like followers does not necessarily translate to sales, collectability, even longevity. Um, because I feel like, and again, maybe I'm old, old, well, maybe I'm just old, but I feel like Instagram and social media is a fleeting thing. Like, I mean, some people go up and then they go down and then they go up and they go down if they're lucky. Um, but it's because it's still relatively new. I mean, these kinds of things haven't even existed for a generation yet, or, or even a decade at, at the level that they're at even now. So we don't know if these people are going to perpetually make work, if they're going to build their careers. I mean, can their careers get any better if they start off as a Insta star or a Facebook star? Like, you know, will they continue their careers and build them to be needed or desirable or whatever word you want to put to it? I don't know, but it is really, you know, like, Facebook and Instagram particularly, you know, they've both got over a billion or several billion users. And, you know, that phrase, your network is your net worth. I think that will really come into play if people's attention moves away from social media and you were an Insta star or Instagram star artist or something of that nature. Those people would still have a network. They would still have a core network of a few hundred people that were going to help them you know, whatever leapfrog or to the next, what whatever it is, next platform, the next way of making money, the next high profile gig, you know, it, they don't, they might not need the million followers, but they would still have, they would still be known by people that would be helpful to them to do whatever the next thing is. But just referencing the gallery that you said was telling Artie that they didn't have enough followers, you know, in the publishing industry, this has been, a bit more of an open, I don't even know if it's a secret, but I was going to say an open secret, where I think it was about up until about three years ago, you know, you needed a social media following of about 5,000, you know, to be able to get a book deal and stuff like that. They literally, you know, sort of had this on the criteria of artists, um, writers, that they would be prepared to even look at proposals from. And I've never openly heard it from a gallery because, you know, art is meant to be, you know, more ephemeral than that or something. But at the end of the day, you know, galleries, those sorts of galleries, like publishing houses, are businesses. And that is really kind of telling them that there's an audience for the work 
that you're making, that we're financially backing, and we're going to put out to the market. So it's evidence of an audience, potentially. Hmm. Okay, I got a question, burning question in my mind. I've always wondered this about independent curators, because independent curators, to me, are a reasonably new thing. You know, I grew up with museum institutional curators, and that was it. There was no such thing as an independent curator. How do independent curators, so I guess realistically I'm asking you, like how do you make a living at that? Because that's got to be tough. Yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, the artists would go for grants and then you can get paid out of that. Um, or, you know, curators become grant writers and work with the artists to and get a fee out of that, you know, the money that they've got from the funding. Um, that is one way. Um, I started as an art dealer. So I was not, you know, I mean, training curating and did that, obviously, and had my own space and everything. But essentially, it was just like a commercial gallery situation. Yeah, it's a blend of all of those things, really. I'm kind of moving it uh, slightly more to a fee based. I mean, obviously, alongside this, I do the mentoring and that aspect of it. So that is another uh, revenue stream. But that is also working with those artists for their own show. So I'm not necessarily the curator for their exhibitions. I'm just there in a, in a support, coach, mentor, consultancy capacity. Um, so there's that side of it. Well, because it feels to me like, I mean, I'm an artist. I'm a teacher. I do all kinds of different things. Of course, I have like four different jobs, just like everybody else in the arts world. But curating feels like one of those things that like you really have to be very active and very on top of everything be, you know partly following trends partly creating trends more even more so than an artist because like me as an artist and of course anybody listening as an artist i only make what i make and so it's pretty much is mine gonna sell or not gonna sell and that's it but i feel like your job is to know what the next thing that the next client is gonna want that they don't even know exists yet and that you have to go out and find that thing and figure out what that thing is that i mean it's a fascinating idea to me i mean do you do that i'd never really thought of it that way i mean for me independent means not being tied to an institution it means not being tied to certain artists, like in a gallery representation capacity, you know, I'm much more freeform. I can go and, you know, do this project over here with these people, and then I could do another project over here with these people. So that's what independent means to me more than actively going and searching trends. But probably, yeah, that is happening along the way. If you think of like my virtual exhibition compared to other people's you know, the format and experience of that is quite different. Well, but even just the artist, I mean, the one thing I think a lot of people don't understand about curators is that they spend probably most of their time, if they really broke it down, simply seeking out the next artist that they're going to work with, doing gallery, just studio visits, uh, you know, looking around online, social medias, like all these different kinds of things. Because like it's your, if you can't find artists that are good and collectible or purchase or exhibition worthy or anything like that, then you're out of a job. So like you have to find the, that beautiful balance of quality of work, quality of person. So the artist is a good person and an interesting story and all this, and they're 
able to be presented in a way that collectors will be engaged. I know, but I love it. I, I, I mean, this is so true, but this is why I probably do spend, you know, I mean, I feel like you've just justified quite how much time I spend looking at artists' websites and, um, you know, social media accounts and so on. But yeah, studio visits you know, is one of my favorite things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, and, and I think that's why I like doing that in an independent capacity because it's, you know, really opens up the sort of, diversity of people I can be working with around the world now. Well, I find what well, I have found in through my conversations here on the podcast that basically, uh, as far as I can see, curators are the gatekeepers for the arts world. So like there, there's the artists and they're sort of at the bottom of the pyramid. And then it's sort of at the point of the pyramid, maybe the funnel, the point of the funnel is curators because curators have the connections to galleries, institutions, and collectors that artists simply can't have for whatever reason. We're, we're just generally really bad at doing, but curators have that charisma that whatever it is to be able to both work with artists who are oftentimes a little crazy and work with collectors and institutions and and galleries that are sometimes can be crazy on their own but you you you're the gatekeepers of the a lot of that information a lot of those connections a lot of those opportunities that we as individual creators may never even know were available well, I feel like you've just bestowed me with whole so much more like power and influence that I ever thought I had. <laughs> but well, that's, uh, that's my job, right? <laughs> it's such a good host. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, we sit between artists and buyers or artists and institutions. I don't really work with institutions. Um, you know, there are curators who work with institutions. I mean, and you know, they don't have to be galleries and museums. They can be, you know, hotels and stuff like that, right? I mean, they're patrons of the arts in different capacities and they they buy artwork on a regular basis. So, or offices and um, those kinds of places. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, it, I think we're just visible in different ways, you know, like where we find opportunities. And there's a whole lot of hustle that goes with it, particularly if you are independent. It's always about seeking out opportunities or how you can add value to somebody's, you know, like a couple of months ago, I was talking to a hotel firm and how you can add value to whatever it is they're doing, you know, in terms of like, okay, curating an art and exhibitions and, you know, the artist and da da da, right? Because I think one of the things you have to remember is like those sorts of clients are still looking at, and again, I'm really talking about the commercial end of things, right? Rather than institutions. But we have to think of what artists don't do, and I would like more of them to do this, is think about like what's in it for the other person. So, you know, particularly if you're going for like for a hotel or you're going for a members club or you're going for any of those things. An office, you know, you're talking to architects because they want to put work in a new proposal or something. What's in it for them? Like normally those kind of places, it's about, you know, they want more footfall. And so, like, how can you help them achieve that through having art there? So if you had that social media following, you would be able to send them there, right? You know, so it all kind of links back there. Or, you know, if you were, like, confident talking about your work, then we could have an event. and We could do an artist curator talk. So there's, you know, different ways of doing it. And I think this is where, you know, curators and, you know, even working with people like me in a sort of a 
mentoring or consultancy capacity can help you figure those things out and what your offering is and um, you know how to pitch it in a way that's going to make it easy to say yes to. Have you had much experience working with like selling artwork to offices, office buildings slash hotels and things like this versus just exhibiting in them, but like actually selling works to those people? No, that's not something I've done. No, I've, I've always gone at the retail end or I've had exhibitions in those places and then I have sold work. But again, that the buyer is an individual, not the, uh, the organization or the building. Yeah, because I had a horrible, horrible experience with a hotel, a hotelier, I guess, you know, it's a guy who owned a hotel, he was building a new hotel. And he said, Oh, yes, I would love you to work with your students and make new works to put in in our room. So he wanted like 400 individual unique pieces of art. And, it, and I was like, Oh, that's amazing. That's great. And, you know, here's the price. And he was like, Oh, no, I want, I'll only pay like one tenth of what you just said. And I want you to use this flower in all the images and you have to work with this color palette. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I think you, you've come to the wrong person if that's what you're asking for. So like it, it was a, while it could have been an incredibly lucrative thing for me to do, and maybe it would have been, you know, launched my career or whatever and helped out in some ways, they they came to me basically as a decorator and they just wanted me to produce something that de was decorative and, and of their brand, which could be amazing. And that's why I wanted to know if you had actually done any of these kinds of works and things like this, because I want to know if any, basically anybody has done anything like that and it has had good benefits beyond just the original sale. Mm, don't know. I mean, I guess in, in a project like that, it's like they only needed one or two artists that were happy to do that. And it's more, a, sounds a bit more like a graphic design job anyway, doesn't it? It really was. And, and it's sort of, but it, it's one of those things like, I also think back to like all of the hotels I've ever stayed in and not once in my entire life have I ever said, oh, that piece of art in the hotel, I want that in my home. So true. So amazing. I want to live with that. It's most hotel art is crap. I mean, it's the lowest common denominator of art, basically. It's purely just cheap and decorative. I apologize. I continually offend all my potential sponsors for this podcast. Like I've already offended Ikea and a bunch of other companies already. So like, I don't care. But a lot of that is, it's almost like stock photography that they have in hotels. You know, it's just, you know, it, it's somebody else's game. It's not really the place that you or I are playing. But I know um, Saatchi Art, you know, the big website, they supply artwork to those sorts of projects. Um, but of course, all their work is on a is, is available for you know for sale on the website right so they can just price up a project out of it well it's basically stock art instead of stock photography at that point yeah from my own experiences i have tried to approach galleries and curators and institutions through social media emails you know all these different you know dms facebook messenger all these things and i'll be honest i am horrible at it and i've had very little to no success at it have you had experiences with this i have i i do get such a random selection of um you know dms and emails like sometimes people just like slide in the dms and they go hey look at my art and 
I find that really annoying because they, they don't probably follow me or they've just found me and they thought, oh, curator, podcaster, whatever. And I'm not even sure why, you know, which one of those things, because of course my, let's say on Instagram, my bio is filled with so many things. And they just come in and they say, hey, look at my art. Or somebody said that um, I should send you my pictures. And so somebody, quote unquote, somebody yeah. <laughs> who, who they should, if, if you ever talk to somebody and you say somebody, you have to mention the name because that's the thing that makes the connection. It's, it's that name, that, that networking, never say somebody. Yeah. Don't make it up and say it was Jerry Saltz or something either. You know, I mean, do you know Jerry Saltz? No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> be shocked be very very impressed but, um yeah no they, they just sort of these sorts of things and but what's really confusing about that is like okay somebody said or they felt even off their own back that they would send me these pictures or the you know a link to their website or something and no reason you know there's a, this assumption that i know what they want or they think they are of interest to me you know and this is usually not when I've done any kind of a call out it's just it's just there and so it's like well what are you after you know did you want a shout out on Instagram did you want me to write about that show that you're you know I can see you're in because I've now gone onto your feed have you you know you're asking to be a podcast guest are you looking for help with your career well like what is it you want so I think if people were just clearer about that, that would be, you know, much more helpful. Obviously, it would be even better if they were actively sort of uh, engaging on my own posts so that I'm slightly a bit more aware of them. And, you know, we have some kind of social interaction virtually before, you know, turning up there. I have a question about mm -hmm. that. I've never asked this question before, but I want to know. I personally, like when I post things, the comments are nice, but generally I would say like, so we're talking Instagram only likes probably make me happier personally than the comments, because I find that most comments are either inappropriate, rude, irrelevant. Uh, you know, they're just like a bunch of smiley faces and hearts and stuff. And like, doesn't mean anything or like they're just linking to some other thing that they want me to then go look at. So like, I, I find that most comments are useless. And so like what I prefer, like when I do it and again, I'm doing it all wrong. Remember, this is the wise fool podcast. So I'm doing lots of things wrong. So obviously I'm doing it wrong, but I generally don't comment on other people's posts because what more, what, what do I have to offer to a post to say like, oh, it's, hey, great post, beautiful image. Like, <laughs> I mean, who cares? Like, we know it is. <laughs> if you hit like, you've basically said the same thing. So like, why? I just find, you know, as much as I appreciate a nice comment and, and you know, even critical, constructive feedback, I, I don't, see the benefit of them other than just uh, ego such a good question it's um you know like your lack of social interaction on other people's posts is really a mirror to you know your own feed isn't it really if you're not actively being you know sort of uh, social and commenting i don't know i mean i think a lot of the artists i'm whose posts i'm writing about i'm 
just saying, you know, I like it or, you know, it's what else do I tell them? You know, I mean, I think when artists are announcing that they got selected for something, things like that, sort of, you know, sort of congratulating them on all that sort of thing. Or if I'd seen the artwork somewhere, you know, it was on show last year, then I might sort of comment on, yeah, that was, you know, it was nice meeting you then and stuff like that, I think. Oh, no, no, that's very different. A very personal comment of like, oh, it was, yeah, I remember I was there. Or I remember meeting you there. That's great. All for that. Very personal. To me, the purpose of social media right there, basically reconnecting with somebody that maybe you didn't keep up with. And now all of a sudden you're reconnecting with them on a very unique, authentic, individual way. Love those kinds of things. But just people that like put like a bunch of hearts and a bunch of smiley faces, like for comments, I find that ridiculous. Don't get me wrong. People do it for the podcast and I appreciate it, but I'd prefer if it was something a little bit more substantial. Yeah, well, maybe that that's it. You've got to just practice then. I don't know. Maybe what if you like actually ask a question in your posts? You know, that's always going to be better. Like, you know, when you put this episode out, it's like, what was your favorite takeaway or what was... Your favorite quote from da da da, you know, or I don't know, you know, asking them a question that they can actively answer. Well, and I've heard that that the, the, a lot of uh, good ways to engage with social media is to basically ask questions of your network and, and get them engaged in a conversation instead of just simply putting out a fact and saying like, "Here is this thing, there, like it or don't." Absolutely. And I think this is where people get it wrong with um, exhibition marketing and art marketing as well, because artist has exhibition is not really headline news. You know, it's like you've got to have something more of a hook than that. So, yeah, definitely asking questions. I think also I found that really helpful for my podcast. You know, when I've asked people what they I don't always ask them what they think. I usually sort of do it before a guest is coming on and I'll let them know. And then say, what what questions have you got for this person? That often helps. Yeah, I tried that early on, and nobody asked any questions, so it was rather embarrassing for me. So, and I'm I'm scared now to go back and do it now. And you didn't like make some up. (laughs) No, I know I probably should have, but you just yell out the window and have people tell me. I could say, like, my wife wanted to know. So you have a new book out that is literally directed to artists to try to help them do better. So flesh it out for me. Tell me a little bit more about it, and then I'll add in some more questions. Yeah, that's right. The book is called Show Your Art, How to Build an Art Career Without a Gallery. It just came out on Kindle. And so I decided actually to self-publish with this because, and it's a slight deviation from what you asked, because... I felt very much it was like a writer going after a publisher was a lot like an artist chasing a gallery for representation. So exactly like that. Yeah. So I thought, well, if my book is about how to be a self-representing artist and build a career without a gallery, then it made sense for me to actually just go ahead and publish on Kindle. So yeah, it's available on Kindle. It's called Show Your Art. And it's very much aimed at the new or early career emerging whichever word you want to use, artist, talking about, you know, we we actually do talk quite a lot about things that we've already mentioned in this episode, like writing your artist statement and sort of delving into yourself, your own backstory, especially for those artists who are perhaps career changers and so on, or they've returned to art after 
a decade away doing other things or you know childcare, and now they're back in the studio and so on so it's yeah and it's very much aimed at that sort of early career artist how to get off the starting blocks go we talk a lot about writing and communicating the um, ideas in the work at the beginning of the book the statement the biography then using social media email newsletters and how that kind of really fits into your art business and then the second part of the book goes into different ways that they can show without a gallery typical things being something like you know open exhibitions um, open studios and you know working with collectives and so on so yeah that is it's quite exciting hopefully we'll get that into some you know, ranking in number one bestseller status quite soon. Hopefully, yes. Okay, first question I have from that. I have been asking this of numerous people and I've not gotten a good answer that it really helps me out yet. Define like a, an emerging artist versus a mid-career artist. What's the difference? Well, there's a really special formula and I'm going to give you that. <laughs> I love a formula. Yes, please. Do you have it in an Excel spreadsheet or anything yeah. like this? I, I love and it's got all the functions like set in as well. So, Seriously? Yeah. Are, are you being sarcastic? Or are you I'm being, being sarcastic, yeah. Oh, shit. Okay. But we well, could make one serious. up. We, we've just missed April Fool's Day, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah, I totally missed it. Damn. Um, yeah, it's... Okay, so there's a formula. Tell me the formula. No, there is no formula. It, it is oh. wherever you think you are. You know, I mean, it's... I don't know. It's like the number of days you've been an artist versus the number of hours you spent in the studio divided by, you know, sales in euros times something else. No, of course. No, it, you know where you are in your own journey. Oh, I was there sincerely, isn't. I was writing this all down. Okay. So what? It's, there's no formula to define this. Well, because, no. okay. So for me, an, a mid-career artist is somebody who has been selling quite consistently for, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't really even put a time on it, but I feel like that person that is, they've been showing quite consistently. They've got a reputation. They're known, you know, they have kind of quite a strong and known peer group, and they also have a trajectory of like what an, the next level would be for them. That for me is what I would call a mid-career artist. Now, in my experience, they are also, if you want to put time you know, into this equation, they are all usually over 35. But then you're also going to find emerging artists who are over 35, you know, but I've worked with people who have, you know, been doing this since they were 15 and then they, yeah, they did go to art school, but they've just had some early success and then they've been just sort of showing consistently and in their practice and then, you know, so they can definitely say they've been at it for, you know, over a decade and a half. But I, I wouldn't really put a time on it. I think it's the position in the longer time frame. What, what are your thoughts? Where do you think a mid-career and an early well, I don't know that because this has come up because, well, first of all, most people, when they say emerging, they generally do mean younger than 35, which I personally think that's kind of ageist in many ways, because I think there are a lot of people that come to art later in life. So totally there's agree. no need to do that. But I made mistakes in my career, which was uh, going into academia. So therefore I was not to as much part of the commercial market. So I don't have as much of that sales record necessarily, even though I have 20 years of exhibiting. So it, it's sort of one of the things like in the commercial market, I have 
pretty much like very minimal track record. But in the exhibition industry, I have a very nice looking CV. So it's like, I, I would probably be a mid-career exhibiting artist, but a emerging commercial artist. But then again, doesn't it go back to like who you're talking to? So if you were talking to an institution about a an exhibition, then you would probably be mid-career because you've had like 20 years under your belt. Yeah, I would be I would be mid-career to an institution and an exhibition idea. But if we're talking about sales and collectors, I would probably be defined more as an emerging artist because I don't have a huge collector base and I don't have a huge following of people that are buying my work and clamoring mm. at the doors. So and and this is something that I find is very common. I I that artists sort of fall into one realm easier or faster in their career than the other. I mean, here in the Czech Republic, it's much more common to be an exhibiting artist than necessarily a commercial artist, uh, because there's a lot of good financial support here in the Czech Republic to you know support their careers and all this. So they don't they don't feel the need to sell they because they can be supported in other ways. Whereas other places I've lived, like in the United Arab Emirates, it was all about sales, like 100% about sales. The institutions, they were irrelevant in many ways. Everybody like based their prestige on how much they sold their work for. So like literally the value and the money that were transacted was the status symbol for that, that, that arts market. So, I mean, it's all very, I mean, as much as it's a global community, there are very unique regional tiers and levels and expectations and definitions. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I don't really know what to add to that. You know, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, it's, you know, it's very much tied to capital markets in certain countries. Um, but also, like, again, it goes back to, you know, who you're talking to, because for them, some people will only see sales record, but other people will see your visibility in, in other ways, you know, through catalogs or publications for other things you've appeared in as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like on Artnet, I've only got one exhibition. <laughs> but I've been exhibiting for 25 years. So, but so I just didn't. Can you not put a back catalog of a archive on there then? Uh, you know, I just haven't. That's just, you know, another thing on my list of things that I should do to build my career that I'm not going to do anytime soon. <laughs> I mean, but this is my, okay, okay. This is my biggest pet peeve with everything in the art world these days and i mean this is really why i sort of like decided to do this podcast in many ways is because in the old days because i sound old when i say this kind of stuff but like traditionally art was you make art in your studio you take it to a gallerist the gallerist then sells it to their local regional collectors and then they get another gallery somewhere else in the world for you and so you really as an artist you could pretty much just sit in your studio and make your work you give it to the gallery the gallery then basically feeds it out to the world on your behalf these days the artists have been saddled with doing so much work and there are so many opportunities that I find the entire process of even deciding which opportunities to try for daunting. Yeah. This is where you need more eyes in your business. Like, you know, again, going back to like why you know, you need 
a mentor or a coach or somebody, you know, like some of the larger studios, they'll have, um, you know, a studio manager or somebody that's actively managing that artist's career, you know, with like, okay, well, these opportunities have come in or I've found that, you know, we should be visible in these places and somebody to do that with you. So you're right, the artist, it does have to, you know, be that decision maker, but it's not something that has to be done alone. I feel very alone. You're not part of any collective or network or something. What you have to understand is the even the de- the thing of being part of a collective. That's a very European thing. Um, this is not common in America, and I've never heard of it before I moved here. So that idea of being part of a collective is very geographically unique to this region, for sure. So I mean, it sounds great. I love it. I mean, because one of the big problems that artists have is we will go into art schools theoretically not every artist goes to art school but most of us go to some art school and we have this incredible experience of you know bonding and critiques and like oh you know bitching about our professors and looking at opportunities and like this great uh, studio experience and then we leave school and we have nothing yeah so that idea of a collective is basically the idea of create recreating that whole bonding experience as a practicing artist instead of as a student. And I love that idea. And I've known artists that have sort of have that sort of find that community after art school when they move into a studio building as well. I mean, that's another way of sort of getting, you know, that or being a part of it as well. Like uh, especially around here in South London, there's lots of old factories warehouses railway arches that have been converted into artist studios and you know they they just have yeah really great communities within them you know that they don't actively position themselves as a collective but they do do lots of things together absolutely but okay so back to the books the book Mm. is about how to be a practicing artist and how to be successful at it in this day and age and as i said one of my big concerns is, is simply how to filter down all of the opportunities that are available because at this point like if you just say like i mean i know you're more commercial but like if you just look at grants or residencies or anything like this they are all over the world and they are there are so many thousands of them that it takes so much time to just be like just read their little things until you suddenly hit the thing that says nope can't apply for that <laughs> you know But like even the same thing with approaching a gallery or approaching an exhibition space or anything like this or a a potential art fair in another country or or any sort of things like this. How do you filter out all of the stuff that's that's not going to be useful for your career and find the right choices? It's about starting off with a bit of a plan. So if you think of where you want to be in a year's time now, obviously COVID-19, we're all in lockdown. I mean, it's a really strange and sort of unsettling time in that respect. But where do you want to be like in a year's time or at the end of 2021, for example? Or, okay, and that's then, easy. You know, give yourself a five-year plan as well. And okay, then I, I want to have think... a piece of my work in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I knew you were going to say that. Oh. So like that one, you know, this one, I would love to reverse engineer this. So if we start that, yeah, all right, let's do it. So if we start that, so you like, they've just accepted your work. How did that happen? How did that happen? Well, what was the step before it? 
you met okay so you know there's all the things right so there's like yeah yeah you got to like you know we were trustee or something right Board well, and that is the step before the step before it is either somebody even told me this a long long time ago um one of my first podcasts was a guy that gave me amazing step-by-step -step instructions of how to do it which is find the youngest trustee because they're generally the ones who are going to be more willing to uh, put their names to a newer younger unknown artist and sort of woo them if that doesn't work, go to the, uh, like, so let's say I'm a photographer, I go to the photography department, but you don't go to the photography department that's actively working at the institution. You go to the photography person who ran the photography department before and ask them to connect you to the existing people because the existing people get stuff all the time. But the person who doesn't work there anymore, but who's still a curator, that person is loves feeling like a, a a helper like they like they enjoy the the thing that like oh i'm still prestigious enough to be able to help you in this connection and they like that so they will be more helpful than the people who are in the role currently i loved his idea i like it my fantasy reverse engineering of that situation was going to be different Let's hear yours. I love it. Go ahead. Well, it was, you know, so you've got to woo this, you know, somebody uh, on the uh, board or trustees. I mean, it's actually more specific than that, actually, isn't it? It's the acquisition committee, and that's either a subsect or, you know, whoever proposes that artwork to the board to approve the museum having the artwork. So that's one And, and wait, and so are like, these okay. acquisition committees' names made public? Probably not, because I think it will go through numerous levels of approval before it goes to a board meeting because the board meetings are not actually that frequent anyway right you know they have all these subcommittees in between you know about whatever they have them about hr and all the other things so i was going to say so if that was a thing so you had to get them to your show and have them fall in love with your show and it's like well why did they come to your show because you had a show, and just before that, they'd read about you in all the big newspapers. And why did they read about you in all the big newspapers? Because you'd done a a, a commission at an, somewhere big, like an airport. And so, obviously, it was a high-spend thing, and your artwork was there. And because it was a an expensive airport... They, it turned up in all the financial papers, which those board members are actually reading, because you've got to remember all the lots of board members are, you know, from financial services, right? So you're in the Wall Street Journal, you're in Forbes, but you're also in architects journals, and you're all these things. And it's like, well, how did you get the job at the airport? Because you um, applied for the percent scheme, for example. And so, and then when you got that job, you know, or the, the funding to do the job, you actually put aside some marketing budget and you hired a videographer to document your process. And you, so you had that whole, you know, sort of process being, you know, maybe he came every week or something like that when you're in the studio. Maybe there's some other broader, I don't know, connections that, you know, they, that you can make in other ways, like you hired, you know, students or you, you know, people to help fabricate whatever your installation was. So there's that part of it. And then you've actively sort of set aside budget for, you know, creating, documenting the process. I mean, you could literally at this point be thinking, right, and then you hired 
somebody else to go and find you a Netflix producer and then you you know you get them to actually turn this bit of documentary footage that you were having into a much more substantial I don't know uh, Netflix film or something like that so then obviously the people at Forbes and Wall Street Journal and Architects Journal and Art Monthly and all the places were actually even had even much more collateral to write about you so we go back to your project at the percent, you know, for the air, fantasy airport. I'm actually thinking of a particular one, like Jacob Hashimoto did one at an um, airport. I don't know, maybe last year or the year before. It's a phenomenal sort of big, um, his work is like made up of little kites mm-hmm. and they're all strung together and it's, you know, it's a big sort of installation. So obviously you've got some beautiful photography, you know, about whatever your work was. And it's like, well, how did you get on the, you know, how did you get that commission? Because you put up together a great proposal. And, you know, the step before that is, um, what would be the step before that? Is actually signing up to the percent scheme, right? So you literally, I mean, that's the thing you can do this afternoon. It's like, go on, you know. Well, my position would be hiring a grant writer to help you write the proposal would be the step. Well, that, that would come after. That's when, you know, because firstly, when you sign up to the percent scheme, from what I've seen, you literally just sort of register to say that you're available to do, you know, like so the next time a public um, building is going up and they're looking for the artwork, then they have to look at this pool of artists and you're at least in the run. UK specific thing. No, no, it's a US specific thing. Really? Oh, okay. okay. So you, should we just talk about what that is in case our listeners don't know? I know percent for the arts, but it, yeah, in the that. United States, it's not a it's not a federal thing. It's a regional thing. Yeah, that's right. And so you would like you you um so you go to the cultural section of the state government. What, what do you call that? The state's um, website, right? Yeah. Government website yeah. for each state. Like you would go for Florida and you go for Colorado and so on. Well, but that's the thing is, is like right there. So like every artist in the United States, if they want to sign up for the percent for the arts program, they have to go to 50 different websites and sign up 50 different times for every single state in order to get all the opportunities. So again, it's just a, for me, right, but you could be more sheer... strategic and then you could just say, right, well, where is the investment happening? And it's going to be in like a handful of states and then you can do that. Or you can keep an eye on, you know, get Google news alerts to tell you where they're building the next hospital, for example, or you've just full, you know, you you check out a handful of property developers, right? So that you know that well that this is their business, that they're in the business of developing, or you know, building new buildings. So you could just sort of follow and see where they're buying assets and handful. But then it goes back to the thing: it's like how much time you want to put in. Like fifty forms is okay. It's, it's what like two three days work because I've seen the forms; they're not that extensive. You know, you literally have to register it. So, like, if they like your work enough, then they'll come to you and say, well, okay, can you put in a proposal? At that point, that's when you're going to hire somebody to do a rendering and, you know, actually help you write a better proposal or a grant writer or somebody like that. So, that I mean, that's the next level anyway. Well, I love your whole idea of basically figuring out a goal and then sort of working it backwards. Like, how did that, how was that achieved? I mean, that's a, it's a very smart way to think about it, but 
you kind of even within that you still have to have like a, a few backup plans just in oh, case a couple sure. maybe one thing doesn't work out because like you can't r literally like do a a to b to c to d because the it, people are involved egos are involved timelines you know, money's involved all these kinds of things that could somehow throw any one of those direct paths off so you still have to still have to have a few irons in the fire to be sure that you you know one of them will will get you back on track for your your goal pathway but then it's also like why do you want that work in in that museum you know i mean i know the point of your question is it could be the tate or it could be anywhere but why do you think like why is that important to you i mean i've had you know artists sort of talk to me about this and it's like when we look at the tate well you can go and get a job at the tate or i don't know i think the tate do it but the royal academy i'm pretty sure does it you know they have a and the vna does it they have a staff show so you could just go and get a job there and you know as a gallery assistant invigilating the halls and then take part so and there it is your work is at the tate the yeah, that's cheating. That's not the way to do it. You want a curator to deem you worthy. Like that's the, the key thing. Like from my heritage, like getting work into, it doesn't even matter, exhibition, institution, gallery, it doesn't matter where it is. That curator basically get, puts their magic wand and deems you somehow worthy as an artist. Like, we have now allowed you to enter into this elite group of artists, and we think that your work and you are now able to come in and enter. It's an it's a very traditional idea of the arts industry. I'm aware of that, but it's still a desirable thing. Don't get me wrong. There are many other things that I think most artists desire. I mean, I know a lot of artists that their pinnacle of their career is having a, a, a standard, reliable, safe income. Like, and that's enough for them. They don't want any, they don't want or desire anymore. They just want to have the time, the space and the money to do what they want to do. And there you go. Others, it's uh, publishing a book. You know, creating a monograph is the the thing that they most desire in their career. So everybody's is different. I chose the Museum of Modern Art thing because I was trying, when I started the podcast, I wanted to create a quantifiable goal that I could literally try to achieve through the input of my guests. So it was literally a, a random thing. And, and I chose it. I could have chosen publish a book through a publisher and gone down that path or whatever. But it was just the idea of taking an intangible thing, like a bunch of conversations in a podcast and create the idea of a, of a literal tangible result from the conversations. And which, um, have you had a conversation that makes you think actually that is quite realistic and achievable? Uh, no, none, none whatsoever. <laughs> They're all completely still very far away from me. I mean, don't get me wrong. If I, if I took all of the um, advice that I've heard and I literally did everything or I did the good things that I was recommended, um, yeah, it, it could be done. There was, um, there was this artist, and I just can't remember his name, and he, he was repped by one of the big galleries, not Hauser. Sounds like a Gagosian thing, but it, I don't think it was Gagosian either, but he was repped at one of those tier of galleries. And he had a, let's call it an offer in air quotes, which was buy two, get one. He would, so he had the artworks and they, like I said, they were through the gallery. 
and people could buy two but only get one. The other one, they had to be a qualified buyer that they would go and position it in uh, institution. So you could sell it in that from that place if you had demand for your work. <laughs> but right. That, 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 you know, so you're qualifying your buyer to be well-connected enough to go and place it there. Or know that very young trustee. I would assume that most of my listeners are not at that level in their careers yet. Hopefully in the future. I hope that everybody that's listening to this does it, you know, gains whatever definition of success they desire in their career. That's the point of all this. Yeah, agreed. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much for having me as your guest. Thank you all for your support of the Wise Fool Patreon account. If you've not become part of our network... By becoming a supporter, you receive the opportunity to help in the choosing of upcoming guests, cities that I should visit, and also you can give me questions that you would like me to ask future guests. You can find us and support us at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the wise fool, all one word. If you enjoy the podcast, I would appreciate a five-star rating, and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of my many weaknesses that has become glaringly obvious to me through my insights from my guests is that my lack of professionalism in the business practices when it comes to my personal artwork. So I've become putting my work on sale on SachiArt.com. You can find my artwork available for purchase at SachiArt.com. A-A-T-C-H-I-A-R-T dot com slash Matthew Doles, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-O-L-S. Thank you.